Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 15th episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. For those of you wondering, we've been getting this, Dan. No one seems to know who we are when we speak, unless you know us in, in real life or from one of our social medias. I've been getting people saying, yeah, you guys sound great. I love the podcast, but I don't know who's who. So for anyone listening, this is Nick. If you look on the picture, I'm the one with the mustache. Dan's the handsome one with the big arms. <laughs> I don't think you can see my arms in that picture, but I will admit I did flex in a couple of those photos. I, I don't. Are our voices not that distinct, or is it? I guess they just we haven't introduced it well enough. Yeah, I think it's. I think we've got pretty distinct voices, but I mean, again, if it's just two guys chatting about real estate for forty-five minutes, you know, you might get lost in it. So, anyways, the part about that that's kind of cool though is that, that means that more people have come to the podcast from just the podcast organically than through other social media channels, because otherwise they would know who we are. Yeah, <laughs> good and bad, I guess, because that means some of the people on our Instagrams and, and Twitters aren't watching and listening. But yeah, anyway, they're all fake news. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'll support you. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, come on, guys. So I want to start today's show off a little differently. We've got a great show lined up for you today, but I want to rewind and start things off in the glitz and the glamour of 1920s Hollywood, specifically the Hollywood sign, which was constructed in 1923. The sign wasn't initially created to advertise the movies and the starlets, but it was created to advertise none other than real estate. Developers S.H. Woodruff and Tracy E. Schultz began developing a new neighborhood called Hollywoodland. The sign was meant to act as a huge billboard to draw new home buyers to that specific area. So essentially, the Hollywood sign was a very expensive billboard. And considering the original sign was only intended to be an advertisement that was around for 18 months, it turned out to be quite expensive. The construction cost of the sign back in the early 20s was around $21,000, which I just calculated this morning with inflation is around $370,000 in what? 2022 dollars. How do I invest in inflation? That's a great return. <laughs> so next year marks the 100th birthday of the Hollywood sign. It's fitting that the Hollywood sign, the worldwide symbol of entertainment, was conceived as an outdoor ad campaign for a suburban housing development called Hollywoodland. After all, despite all the high profile of the film business, real estate has always been one of the main and primary economic drivers of Hollywood. So I just thought that was such a cool story because, I mean, look, we all drive past them you know, what used to be a farmer's field 10 years ago is now a sprawling suburban area with houses and rooftops as far as the eye can see. But Hollywood has turned out to be something quite different. So I just thought that was a cool story. There's your social currency. Next time you want to sound cool at a party, tell that story, everybody. <laughs> I actually knew that already. Of course you did. Yeah, I, why, why? Why? I used to be in an emo band <laughs> in high school and... It had Hollywood in the name, and I think I just, I don't know, I was fascinated by the lore of it. 
It was called Hollywood Hero, actually. We were pretty good. I was the vocalist. Did some screaming and stuff like that. Oh, I love it. Any chance that there's a... I'll have to check. I mean, there's some leftover photos from my MySpace days. So, like, if you Google me, so probably I'll check. I'll see. Wow. Maybe that's what we start the Patreon channel. Maybe that's the first thing we start. If you want to mix Dan in his seat. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Anyways, guys, that that's. I was really ahead of the curve on skinny jeans. I'll put it that way. And then we'll use this to segue to present day where we have some news. And I feel like every single headline in the past couple of days, so we're Thursday, August 25th, like every single major headline, Financial Post, Globe and Mail, et cetera, had a bank's name in it. Whether it's economists talking, whether it's banks reporting, right? Because we're getting into the quarterly reports and they're not good. They're not bad. Like everybody's revenue is growing, but profits are declining at both CIBC and RBC now. We're hearing a lot about loan loss provisions, this concept of loan loss provisions. I'm not going to get into it right now, but what I found funny was CIBC's chief strategist, not chief economist, CIBC's chief strategist said that they felt that this rate hike upcoming, September 7th is the next Bank of Canada rate hike. That rate hike would be the final rate hike. And that was a headline published in the Globe and Mail. So that was where they were quoted. And <laughs> it was funny because, you know, like this was one marginally bullish article, marginally bullish article among a sea of pretty bad quotes from banks. And the real estate industry just like latched onto it. I don't know if people are like feeling the fatigue of like not <laughs> selling all summer or what, but like everybody was like, rate hikes are over. Prices are going to rally. Like yeah. it's a bull market again, baby. And man, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if you think, because we did this, if you could check our very first episode at the request of the great Simon Belanger, we did an episode on how Canadian real estate performs in a rising rate environment. And in 1989, we saw two peaks, double peak, right? Peaked in Q1, dropped in the summer savagely, like 20%, and then peaked again in Q3. And then it just ate shit for four or five years. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. <laughs> as soon as that article came out, I didn't even see the article, but I saw about 10 Instagram videos about it. People being like, yeah, see, I told you so. Everything's going to be fine. It's fine. We're fine. Yeah, Woe's the guy on, who trolls realtors on Twitter was having a heyday with it because everybody was like, but it's funny, like people were asking me, they're like, what do you think this means for prices? And I'm like, I don't know. Have I ever said whether or not I think prices are going to go up or down? No, like I try and aggregate all of the information. And explain to you what it means, whether or not you're trying to purchase. So does it present risk? If so, what are the risks? Does it present opportunity? If so, what are the opportunities? And then like you give somebody a full piece of information. Like it's not my... I'm probably more qualified than most realtors to say whether or not prices could go up or down. And as a result of that, I know that I shouldn't say whether or not prices could go up or down. So I guess all these other realtors took economics classes that I didn't. Lots to learn still. Did you want to mention that chart or should I go into the next? No, yeah, I will mention the chart as well, actually. So Ben Rabideau, who is an excellent analyst. And for those of you listening who are in the real estate or mortgage space, you can pay for his report. I think it's like 25 bucks a month or something like that. Actually, I feel like he increased the price. It might be like 40 or 50 bucks a month, but still I would pay hundreds of dollars a month for this report. So Steve Soretsky, who hosts another podcast, big guy on YouTube, posted one of these charts from Ben's report. I also posted on TikTok, but basically it shows a square around all of the mortgage originations that were at record low rates. So these are the ones that are vulnerable to trigger rates, which we talked about in the last episode. $261 billion in originations at an average rate of 1.58% variable. 
That was between March 2021 and February 2022. So 15% of total outstanding variable mortgage rates, and they risk hitting their trigger rates in September if we see just 50 basis points hike. Yeah. I mean, that kind of is is a good segue into the article that I referenced, and and I wanted to bring this one up just because of the this is episode 15 and episode 13. We did a full deep dive into the stress test and specifically into trigger rates, which are very topical in this time and place in Canada right now. So this is a, an article. Canada's largest bank said 80,000 of its variable rate mortgage rate clients will reach their trigger point within the next couple of rate hikes. And that is from RBC, Canada's largest bank. So the average increase is going to be about $200 and less than 0.5 of the customers will even require a phone call. Additionally, RBC said that many of its borrowers won't be impacted by the rising rates until their mortgage renewals, and for the majority of them, that isn't until after 2025. So this, to me, says two things. One, it's always really – actually, it really only says one thing. Read the article because if you just read that headline, boom. Panic, 80,000 people are going to hit their trigger rates. They're all going to get phone calls. What's going to happen? It's going to be detrimental for the economy. But literally, if you just keep on reading, you'll see that. Didn't RBC come up with a statement saying, like, we're just going to increase everybody's principal payment by like two bucks to meet the Bank Act requirements? And then, so basically, like, your payments won't actually increase, right? Or they would by like $2, just so that you're not, you're not, not amortizing, right? I don't know about that, but that would be a very interesting and kind of a sneaky, clever way to keep things yeah. fairly status quo for them. Yeah, the big thing with chartered banks is they're chartered, right? Like they have to obey the Bank Act and Basel requirements, right? So there's like three different phases of this Basel that was basically designed to eliminate global systemic risk. I'm not going to go too into this. This is big macro stuff, but basically they have to follow the rules so that they don't blow up the entire Canadian economy and potentially you know other parts of the world who are reliant on the Canadian banking system. So in order to do that they would basically you know put put Canadians in a position. I think that the problem is like what you're saying on renewal is our rates going to stay cuz like the thing about the CIBC rate announcement and this piece of information that you're presenting to me is that yeah, rate hikes are going to stop. We knew they were going to stop. Like every single bank at the beginning of the rate hiking cycle had their terminal rate at 3.5%, right? So we're almost there. If we get another 50 bips, we'll be at 3.25, right? If we stop at 3.25, then they were all pretty well right. There's no surprises here, right? And then the question is, when do we cut, right? And the answer from my perspective is nobody knows, especially not realtors. And I'm one of those. I'm a realtor, not an economist. I don't even think that Tiff Macklem or Jerome Powell know, right? Like, And the reality is Tiff Macklem especially doesn't know because it really doesn't matter what we do. The Federal Reserve is driving the ship here. So like, I feel like we've exhausted the macro and most people have exhausted the macro. There's a lot of people doing it well, better than we are. The question, and this is what this podcast is literally about, how do we make good real estate decisions independent of these factors that we cannot control? Yeah, I love that. And you know what? Humility. Not everyone knows everything. Stay in your lane, people. Don't pretend to be anything you're not because that's, especially if you're in the public eye and you're trying to secure business by presenting data, present the data and have an informed opinion about it, but put the crystal balls away. It's it's not doing anyone any favors. Let's move on to the next part of our show here, Dan. Long overdue. We've We've been getting a bunch of great questions. Keep them coming, everybody appreciate the patience in getting some of them for 
getting back to you guys. It's been a lot of inbound stuff. So let's jump right in. I'm going to take the first one here. This one is from Julie. Hello, I'm really enjoying your episodes and hopefully to hear the thoughts and analysis about the Quebec, Ontario border region from Ottawa to Montreal. Also would like to hear your opinion concerning waterfront properties, particularly from an investor point of view. Great stuff, Julie. I've got a few points here to answer those questions. So waterfront, it's always going to be a pull factor. Depending on where you buy and what you're buying, you may be pretty insulated in this market. I can tell you comfortably probably places in, I don't know, the Okanagan Valley, the Muskoka region of Northern Ontario, and, and some other premium, maybe Banff, Alberta, some other premium kind of cottage waterfront possibility destinations, you'll probably be good. But it depends, obviously, on the buy, the location, and, you know, again, some other metrics on the cottage road access, etc. Keep in mind that before the pandemic, and Dan, I think it was you that told me the stat, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but before the pandemic, cottages took on average over 100 days to sell. And those 100 days drastically reduced down to as little as one day during the peak of COVID as the cottage yeah. frenzy was at its peak. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So basically, on average, the absorption period, so the period of time it takes for a property to sell, the absorption period halved and then it halved again. So it dropped by about 75% in total. So we went from yeah, a 100-day sales cycle on average to a two-week sales cycle right? on average. And the challenge is when you look back at a 100-day sales cycle, that's a product. Cottages are historically cottages, land, et cetera, recreational property. They're illiquid products, right? You can't sell them off quickly. So the big risk from my perspective with the cottage market is that there's a risk of a liquidity trap, right? Where all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, okay, we can travel again. The Canadian government figured out airports and we're going to start traveling. We're not going to do cottaging next summer, right? And they're like, and this cottage is really costing us a lot of money, right? You know, it's a lot more maintenance than we anticipated. So it's a burning liquidity on it, right? It's a recurring cost. And so you want to get rid of that. You want to take it off of your personal balance sheet. You can't do that in a normal market, at least not efficiently, right? And so this to me is where you actually have potential. I thought cottages were going to suffer a lot more already. They've proven to be more resilient than I expected. I'd say, you know, you like Kawartha Lakes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like they're coming down, but they're not coming down as severely as, as the suburban GTA. But I, I think that there's still some downside risk. And I think that the big piece is the liquidity trap, right? So it's like, if you're getting into a cottage, make sure that you understand what the downside risk is and that that is that you could have a hard time selling that property. As long as you're okay with that, as long as you're buying it of the mind that you're not in a rush to sell the thing, then you're okay, right? Yeah, agreed. As for the border regions, I like this question. We've gotten this from a few people. Unfortunately, I can't speak to border regions across the country. However, I can speak to the border region that Julie has asked about, and that's the Quebec-Ontario border region. I actually own, I guess, well, we just acquired another one right there, Dan, in Cornwall, which is definitely a border town. It's just over an hour away from Ottawa, just over an hour away from Montreal. However, you can be within Quebec in like literally, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I think, from Cornwall. So, I like it. I think it presents more opportunity. My one concern, 
with the Quebec-Ontario border specifically is someone just brought this to my attention recently was is Bill 96. And that's I don't want to get political here and I don't want to do a deep dive in on it, but go do your own research if you're interested. Bill 96, it's essentially a new French language law that really pushes to Francify the province. So my concern is this, this will make it harder for some cross-border investing specifically from the Ontario going into or another province going into Quebec, not necessarily Quebecers coming out and investing in other provinces in Canada, but to go and invest in Quebec. That's probably by design, to be honest. Probably by design. I think a lot, look, I I think a lot of other provinces are getting tired of Ontario capital coming in and, and causing a stir, right? Like, look, the Ontario real estate speculator, there's a ton of them, and they're all out looking for the next get rich quick trade, right? Calgary just saw it in the pre-construction condo space. I mean, this is like your Wall Street bets of <laughs> Canadian real estate. Honestly, like yeah. That's what this is, right? It's like and they're What's, chasing what is Wall Street what is Wall Street bets <laughs> for those that don't know. I feel like everyone, especially podcast listeners have now heard of like GameStop or AMC, but Wall Street bets is a subreddit, right? It's on Reddit. Basically this it's aggregation of I mean, I've been on Wall Street bets for like 10 years, I feel like since its inception. Like I got in on the AMC trade pretty early, but <laughs> but you know, it's basically a bunch of people talking about a bunch of retail traders who are basically talking about stocks, but they're doing it in like a very irresponsible way, like like you know, yoloing options trades on margin and whatever and I'll leave it at that. But so I would say like the policy is probably designed to stifle things like what you're just, or the, what I'm describing, right? I don't necessarily see that there's anything wrong with that. My take on that border region is, you know, from an economic perspective, this is the most significant population and urban agglomeration. If you look up the word urban agglomeration, these are like large, greater Golden Horseshoe would be another good example, right? These are a bunch of cities that are clumped together. And then there's like bigger than that would be megalopolises, which are like, there's one called the, <laughs> the Great the Great Lakes Megalopolis, which would include like Toronto all the way to Chicago, right? As an example. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, but anyway. If you look at this area, it actually has a greater population than the greater Toronto area. It's not bigger than the greater Golden Horseshoe, but it is bigger than the greater Golden... So more economically significant. So you have the Montreal CMA, Census Metropolitan Area, which is 4.1 million, let's say. Then you have the Ottawa CMA, which is 1.3... Sorry, Ottawa Gatineau, which is 1.35 million, let's say, Right. So combined, and the greater Toronto area is 5.98 million. So just say 6 million, right? So you have this area that is close to as significant with just those two cities, and that doesn't account for all of the areas in between. So if you're a logistics company, which is, you know, we know Walmart has a headquarter in Cornwall as an example, it makes a lot of sense for you to be somewhere like this. And I think the other significance is when you get into these urban agglomerations, you start to see what's the next biggest trend in Canadian real estate. From my perspective is what are baby boomers going to do, right? There's 10 million baby boomers in Canada, just shy of 10 million baby boomers in Canada. So like a third of the population, right? What their secular shift is determines what's going to happen to the real estate market in the next decade, right? And I think a lot of them are going to be moving out of urban areas, but staying close to them, right? And they're going to be moving into smaller urban areas that are more affordable, but still have those things like intimate walkability, et cetera. A place like Cornwall or a lot of the cities in those areas, you know, Canada, et cetera, have a lot of those things. They check a lot of the boxes that boomers will be looking for. 
their life literally depends on them being able to walk to the grocery store, et cetera, because it'll keep them healthy, right? They want those things. They want to live that European lifestyle where they're, you know, getting a walk into the grocery store every day, going to coffee with their friends. They got to have socialize. They got to be able to socialize and be physically active, et cetera. So I think you get two major cities where people are going to start to move out. I would say that border region, I'm massively bullish on it, to be honest with you. It's probably one of the yeah. old, one of three areas in Canada that I'm bullish on. I love that. So not to be confused, everybody, we're talking specifically about the Quebec-Ontario border here, right? Not every border area is going to have the same metrics or demographics that Dan's speaking about. Let's move on here. I'll read this question. You take away the answer here, Dan. This one is from Jeremy. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Great to hear some non-biased insight from some pros in the Southern Ontario region as I'm in Niagara. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. Just had a few questions for you guys. I'm 27 years old, bought my first place at 21 and did three flips of my primary residence up until the spring of 2021 when I sold and bought a plot of land to build. Unfortunately, that won't be happening for a while as the land has some issues. Anyways, I either need to be entering back into the market between the $500,000 and $700,000 range. We have been extremely patient. I just wanted your opinion on timing the market. Uh Uh-oh. Would you be looking to buy in the fall time, hopefully to get a good deal or rent and buy again in 2023? Just want to see what you guys think and also the benefits of renting your primary residence, as I've heard you guys mention that a few times. Hope to hear from you soon. Thank you. So thanks for the question, Jeremy. So Dan, let's just focus in on that. Well-accomplished 27-year-old who's done multiple real estate transactions. So well done, Jeremy. But he wants timing the market. So why don't you talk about timing the market for a second and then let's talk about renting the primary yeah he did ask for our opinion maybe not advice on it so like my opinion is that timing the market is exceptionally difficult you know to me it's you look at the purchase of assets on whether or not there's downside risk apparent or whether or not there's upside risk apparent and you just weigh those options right and in february of 2022 as an example from my perspective there was a lot more downside risk than there was upside potential so it wasn't necessarily a broad timing thing it was just like this period of time doesn't fit my mandate. Gradually, as things progress, I think that the downside risk gets lower and the upside potential gets higher, right? And in an area like Niagara, as an example, where you've seen a pretty quick recoil in prices, you know, you might end up seeing deals, good ones within the net. You know, if you're asking my question on when I think the market is going to bottom, I think based on those historics that, that Nick and I analyzed in the first episode, I would say it's going to take a couple of years. But you can buy a record low comp within that two-year period. Financial stress happens. You're going to see a major deleveraging of investors. As long as you're not sitting on the sidelines and you're actively looking for properties to invest in, I think you'll find a good deal like Nick and I just did as an example. Like I'm not necessarily broadly bullish and I don't think it really matters whether or not I'm bullish or bearish on real estate in either direction at any given time, right? What matters is whether or not I can find a good value investment. So I think if you take the principles that we try and discuss here, which are value investing in real estate, then it doesn't matter about timing the market. And I think that it's way easier to create a skill set that makes you good at analyzing a single real estate transaction than it is to create a skill set of analyzing the entire macro and trying to pinpoint a point in time that you're getting the best deal. Because there's like even interest rates matter about when you're getting the best deal. Because like it could be a $20,000, $50,000 swing 
between two months ago and present day based on how quickly interest rates are jumping around. Just a five-year mortgage term, your capital cost could be $50,000 different on a property in that $500,000 to $700,000 range. So my advice is get damn good at finding the best possible deals, not thinking about... Honestly, I would, I would actually... Because the best possible deals you'll know they're going to make you feel comfortable independent of the macro. You're going to be like, I can't live without this property. I don't give a shit what the market does. I don't care if it goes up. I don't care if it goes down. I don't care if I have to renew this mortgage at a 10% interest rate. I need this property because it's so good. Go look for those. They're out there. They really are, right? But you're not going to find them if you're waiting for the market to be perfect timing. You got to be looking at properties all the time. If you need an agent out there who likes to play by the same set of rules that we put together, I'm happy to introduce you to a couple of people in that market who can help you find a place sort of with the system that Nick and I run. Yeah, let me just jump in before we move on to the renting the primary. This, I just want to quote our secret partner here, the ghostwriter for the show, the smartest guy we both know, who has a quote that he told me that we use and I think that we just executed on with the most recent purchase, which is, don't time the market, you know, and I'm not going to, we can say don't time the market, it's time in the market. You know, we've all heard that before. But time in the market can really be it's all about preparation, right? If you've ever painted a room before, you know that the real work comes with actually preparing the walls for the paint. It doesn't come with the painting. That being said, you need to be prepared for when that deal comes by. So timing the market, the market is going to do what the market does. You need to do what you do, which is be prepared for that. And to quote our secret partner here, patiently impulsive, be patiently impulsive about that. So you're not going to time the market, but what you can do is time yourself and time deals and be ready to pounce on it when that opportunity presents itself. Yeah, for sure. And I think like the, the market will time itself, right? Like, not, you know, not to say the budget will balance itself, but like <laughs> as an example, like that partner, Johnny, we've been looking at properties up in, in Northern Ontario and we can't find a good deal. Like prices are still too high. We're not seeing anything compelling. So we shifted our focus to the Cornwall market because Cornwall has revealed itself to still be relatively efficiently priced, fairly priced. And I think that as the fundamentals start to get back to what your mandate is, you got you to gotta know what you're looking for. What kind of rate of return am I looking for? What kind of risk am I comfortable with? How much capital appreciation am I anticipating? How much capital appreciation am I willing to settle for at a minimum? Because we're not in a market where that drives returns anymore. So really like as an exercise, write down on a piece of paper, what kind of investor am I? Because like when you're in a private equity space, right? Funds have very specific targets. This is why they are better investors than you and I, Nick, because they know exactly what they're looking for. And if the deal doesn't fit their capital requirements, they stuff that deal, they negotiate it so hard so that it does fit or they walk away from it. And it has to fit a very, very specific mandate. That's hold period, that's rate of return, right? That's how often they're getting paid, different hurdle rates. Asset class, exactly. Very specific. And if you want to be like that if you want if that's the scale you want to get to if you and some people don't have ambitions to do that but if you want to get to the size of these massive mega funds or if you, even if you want to get into the private equity size of real estate you got to start treating yourself like a private equity investor and be specific about what you want to invest in in regards to renting your primary residence i think it's a matter of personal preference it, it comes down to and it comes back to that that concept of of investing can you allocate your capital better elsewhere right are you capable of earning a greater return than a primary residence would earn you, right? I'd add to that as well. I think the primary res, it really comes down to a very emotional decision, right? As real estate investors, we try to look at just the deals, the ad value, the the numbers of a property. 
I try to keep emotion out of it as much as possible when analyzing a deal. Then again, you know, in the mortgage side of my work, we speak to people all the time and, you know, the the term forever home gets thrown around quite a bit. Well, guess what? Forever home is an extremely emotional thing, decision, time in your life. So if owning a home is important to you and your family, whether it's a savings vehicle or not, we're not going to get into that right now. I think that there are bigger things to consider when you're going to be doing. Are, are you a boomer that has now an empty nest? You know, you had, went from a four bedroom house. Now it might be time to go rent something somewhere to have a little bit of freedom, a little bit of freedom to move around and travel and whatnot. Are you a young person that that is kind of more, you know, not settled in one career or not settled in one place yet? And you can see yourself moving cities, provinces, or even internationally at some point. That's the qualitative side. But like, I think it also makes the assumption that objectively on the quantitative side, it is even better to own a house than rent it. And there is like, it could be argued in either direction, right? People who are good at investing, like anyone I know who's in capital markets, as an example, investment bankers, right? These guys are making millions of dollars a year and they're investing exceptionally well with that money. For this individual who asked us this question, if they're buying a $700,000 house, that's 140 grand that they could have in the markets, right? If they're good, if they're a skilled capital allocator, if they're a skilled investor, they can easily outdo the return that their primary residence would bring them. Because you got to think about sunk costs, right? So there's taxes, maintenance, insurance, et cetera, right? And these are all costs that you'll never recover. So plus, yeah, you're buying down some principal. I think it's great as a savings vehicle. If you need a savings vehicle, then the primary residence is great. Most Canadians do need that, right? But for people who are listening to this podcast or are interested in investing, et cetera, I don't think most of them need a savings vehicle. I think they, they're probably, they need investment vehicles. And I would say in a lot of cases, you're better off getting that elsewhere. Yeah, it does give you the access to leverage. That's probably the main primary advantage of real estate, right? But you can get that kind of leverage elsewhere. Like if you go buy a REIT, as an example, you're buying it at the same leverage points, right? If you go buy a gold mining company, you're buying it like 100x leverage points, right? If you go buy a gold company on margin, you're getting even higher leverage points, right? You go trade some some Wall Street stocks options on margin, you're getting like even crazier leverage points, right? So leverage isn't necessarily a competitive advantage. You just got to like really, boil, again, distill it down to what it is. Look at the pros and cons, qualitative and quantitative. It's like, I can't really give blanket advice. I personally rent my primary residence because I can allocate capital better than a primary residence can allocate it for me. And I don't want all my money tied up in a house. I don't want a monthly burn rate. That's twice what it would be to rent. And I don't want to put that down payment into the bank's pockets or have it sunk into my primary residence when I could spread it across a rental portfolio. Yeah, love that. I feel the exact same because I do the exact same. And for for stock advice, go over and listen to the Canadian real estate or sorry, the Canadian investor. You're listening to Canadian real estate investor. Go listen to Simone and Braden. They know what they're talking about. We just dabble. All I have mining stocks. They're all down. Yeah, if you like <laughs> if you like the color red, take your stock advice from me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get to the next question here. This one is from Rita. Hello, Nick and Dan. I would like to hear your opinion about best practices for paying mortgages for investment properties. For example, I have an apartment that I rent out to tenants and for which I pay a mortgage. I know that if I make additional payments on the mortgage every month, aside from the set automatic withdrawals from my account, those payments would go right into the principal. And if I keep it, I could finalize the mortgage payment many years prior its due date. Tony Robbins 
mentions something like this in his book. Well, I mean, if Tony says it, come on. The second part of the question here is, now I'm trying to make sense of whether this is appealing or not, given the tenants are already covering my mortgage payments so I can use the money into buying some more stock investments. In the long term, is it still better for me to speed up the mortgage payoff for my investment properties? Would love to hear you discuss this on the podcast. I like this one. You want to start us off here, Dan? Yeah, this is a good one. I think we talked about this one before. Well, I think it's just the same thing that I just mentioned, right? If you're paying money directly to principal, then you're the only return that you're getting is like you're getting an unlevered return at that point, right? So you're putting, if you put $2,000 into your house, then if your house goes up by 10%, then you made 200 bucks on top of that $2,000, right? You can probably get a better return. I mean, 10%, maybe not, but like you can probably get a better return than, than what you would as a savings vehicle, especially when you're accounting for the fact that, you know, if you have a mortgage on a property, it's probably lower than the rate of inflation today, unless you're borrowing privately, basically, or extreme B side. Like right now, inflation is in the 7%, right? Thursday, August 25th. If you're borrowing at 5%, then go buy anything. And it's a better investment than putting the money into your property, right? Like, (laughs) because at that point, if you put it in, it's just savings. Yeah, maybe because you're paying your mortgage down, it will reduce your capital cost, right? Because you have a less principal outstanding. But in most mortgages, that compounding is not calculated frequently enough for it to become a major advantage to you, right? So let the real estate do what it do its thing. Let it be consistent revenue generated. Let it pay for itself. Let it amortize its own mortgage and put your capital to work somewhere else. I would encourage you to find a company that you are so passionate about that you would love to invest it in or another real estate market or investment that you're so passionate about that you can go make a return on it. It sounds like the asset makes sense. So either try and start saving up for another one and put that money into something else in the meantime, or you know allocate it somewhere else where it's going to make you a better return, right? Same as the renting thing. If you can get a better yeah. return, do it. If you can't, or if you prefer the savings, if, if you know it's going to burn a hole in your pocket as an example, right? And you're going to lose all that money, then maybe it makes sense because you need a savings vehicle, right? But just accept it for what it is. If you're putting principal into the mortgage, you're getting a savings vehicle and you're getting a marginal advantage on the interest rate that because you're, you're paying down more principal. Yep. Love that. Just want to add a few points because I agree with what you said. I think most of the smart investors I know you know, pay off their homes to a certain extent and then rack the debt right back up on them because that interest is all tax deductible. But again, that's the business that we're in. We're in the business of real estate investing and that business is built off of leverage. So you won't get to the size or the scale without doing exactly what we're telling you to do. And again, sorry, that's not what we're telling you to do. This is just, this is not financial advice. This is just a conversation Dan and I are having but if you look at all the major real estate companies in the world, they all use leverage and you know, just make sure it's good debt, right? If it's good debt that's being serviced, that is not a bad thing. Now, I mean, obviously you don't want to see a third or fourth mortgage or max out HELOCs or anything like that, but control the debt and and it will do very good things for you. I think we've got time to fit one more in here, Dan. I'm gonna read this one out and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take it away here. This is from Cam. Hi, Nick and Dan. Big fan of the pod. I've been listening to every episode and you guys are crushing it. Thanks, Cam. I have a question for you. Can you spend some time going over why rent prices are increasing while house prices are decreasing? I know this is a topic you have mentioned, but I'd like to learn more about the relationship between housing and rental prices. To me, it would make sense for rent prices to increase when property values are rising. Currently, it seems the demand for rentals is increasing and the supply is decreasing. 
Dan, take it away. Okay, yeah. So rents typically climb during a recession. And I do think we are seeing some recessionary indicators here. So there's a lot of factors here. So there's a positive correlation between recession and interest rate increases as well and rents because you start getting a scarcity of housing. Like as an example, interest rates have gone up a lot. 45 projects, as an example, in the greater Toronto area have been canceled. Imagine that number is about you know 90 to 100 nationally, right, that are being... So you're, so you're already seeing the supply pipeline tightening because it's not compelling, financially compelling to bring new units to market anymore. That's to purchase or to rent. But we know a lot of purchases ultimately end up getting into the rental pool through investment. So... That's component number one, but that takes a long time to to take effect, right? But it is an inflationary force on rents. Factor number two is as interest rates go up, the marginal buyer who, you know, maybe we can use the example of the last individual who, or two, two individuals ago, Jeremy, I think it was, who was looking for a house at $500,000 to $700,000. $500,000 to 700000 is actually great because in February, he could have afforded a $700,000 house. But now with the same mortgage payment that he qualified for, he can probably only afford a house that was in the $500,000 purchase price because interest rates have gone up so much that your buying power gets destroyed. So what happens to a lot of those people who now have been pushed? What if you know somebody wasn't as lucky as Jeremy or as skilled as of an investor as Jeremy and they, rather than being in a position to, to purchase a house in a $200,000 spread, their budget was five hundred k, And now all of a sudden, because interest rates went up and their buying power went down, they can't afford anything. Right. And so they've been pushed out of the market. It's not like they're just going to go homeless, right? They're going to have to rent again. But th- this is somebody who was, who had ambitions of ownership, right? And so they're usually in that, what we were, would now say, say after this K shaped recovery that we've seen in Canada is they're probably in an upper, upper middle class within that demographic group that they're in, right? So they pull the rental market up, right? Because they're now entering from the top end of the market. They're not entering from the bottom end. They're not new household formations, maybe a single individual. These are people who have a lot of cash saved. They had enough cash saved to buy a property. They can bid a lot higher on a monthly basis and like they can afford to pay a lot more for rent. And now all of a sudden, you know, they know they're making a decision, okay, I'm going to rent for another year. They're going to jump in the market and they're going to do that, right? So you're, you're getting demand as household for affordability or as that affordability of owning a house, of buying a house dwindles as a result of interest rates increasing. More people get pushed into the rental pool as well, right? Those are the two major factors, I would say, that where interest rates cause rental rates to increase. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, just another unfortunate byproduct of the inflation that we are, that we're seeing today. There's also, I guess, in the micro economy, you can see some other stuff happening where, you know, we saw a decline in new household formation. So people were actually households were, were amalgamating because kids were moving back into their, with their parents or whatever, you know, moving from the city to go live with mom and dad in the suburbs. That was happening a lot, right? So a lot of, units were just being like vacated instantly, right? And so we saw an oversupply of rental. Like vacancy was like in the 10 plus percent in a lot of major Canadian cities. As people moved out of urban areas, they didn't need to be close to the workplace anymore, right? Now we're seeing that unwinding, right? People are getting back out of their parents. Maybe they're sick of them. Maybe they need to be close to the workplace again. And so, you know, there's a lot of moves happening in the rental market. There's more moves happening in the rental market than there is in the ownership market right now. So if you think about what happens in the ownership market when there's a lot of volume, and you can think about this the same way with stocks, volume can push price up, right? It doesn't have to just be excess demand, but every time a unit gets vacated and brought back to the market, it's being brought back at a new price, right? 
Love it. Thank you, Dan. I think that's a great place for us to end. Thanks so much for listening today, everybody. Like, subscribe, share it with a friend, reach out if there's anything specific you want to know, or if you want to work with Dan and I in any capacity. Yeah, and send us more questions. I was really hoping we get to this last one, but we'll save it for the next time. But it was about uh, yeah. it is about looking for investment opportunities beyond North America. So we'll definitely get to that next time yeah. for Luke. We look forward to answering your question. And yeah, we love getting emails from everybody. We love when you guys help us to tailor our content and and make sure we're creating value for us. So leave us a review in the email that's in the show notes or my preference personally, leave us a five-star review with a question you want us to cover. And we will definitely get to it because we love five-star reviews. And Nick stays up all night reading them aloud to himself before he goes to bed. (laughs) Expose me like that again. Thanks, everybody. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.